Thanks for tuning in to Next Level Church Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at nextlevelchurch.net. Well, good morning to you. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, when it even threatens to snow in Virginia, the whole state shuts down. And when you come to church at the 830 service on a snow weekend, God puts an extra jewel in your crown when you get to heaven. So you guys have that to look forward to. Well, today we're continuing our series. The tension is good. And here's something that we've learned so far. We don't like tension. But progress cannot happen without some tension. I don't think anyone loves tension. We don't like things to be difficult. We like to have an easy button. We like things to be easy. But if you think in your life about any area where you have grown, it didn't come because it was easy. It came because you overcame some obstacle. There was something difficult that you had to face, that you had to overcome. And on the other side of that tension, you became a stronger person. Uh, I was reminded about this. Uh, I got a book for, for Christmas. It's a Will Smith, the actor, uh, Will Smith's autobiography. And uh, Will Smith, uh, I first uh, discovered him when I was like in, I think, fifth grade. I bought my very first album with my own money. It was a cassette tape that dates me. And the album was DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And so I was a fan of Will Smith before he became the actor. And so then when he transitioned from being a rapper to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on television, I watched the premiere episode because I was like, I like this guy's music, and then followed him through his movie career. So when he comes out with this book, it's like a 400-page book. Um, I put it on my Christmas list. I got the book. And one of the things that was interesting is that when he was transitioning from a music career to a movie career, uh, he was learning what does it mean to make a good story And him and his team did some research that in order to pick a film, in order to pick a story that they would, they would, he would act in, they had a formula. They had something that they would look for. And what they came up with is they, they understood that every good story follows the exact same formula. And here is the formula. A story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. That's what a story is. A story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. And if you think about every great movie that has ever been made, it follows this formula. If you think of the original Star Wars, the first one that came out, which now it's episode four, it's so confusing. But the original Star Wars, when it came out, what is it ultimately a story about? It's a story about a, a farm boy named Luke Skywalker who has a desire to fight the Galactic Empire, but he's stuck on this no-man planet, and his uncle won't let him leave. His uncle is holding him back and keeping him. There is a conflict. And so when he ends up getting into the, the, the battle, by the time the end of the film has, you feel something because it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't just he woke up one morning and got everything that he needed. He had to go through the conflict in order to get... To the other side, you think about, uh, I don't know, anyone ever seen the, anyone seen the new uh, Spider-Man movie? Anyone seen the new one? Okay, great. Four and a half of you. Great. Cool. cool. Uh, It's a really big, big film. It's like number four all time in the box office. Um, Well, if if you think about the new, the new Spider-Man film, like a lot of people just love it because, you know, it's Spider-Man. He's a fun superhero. But if you think about that film through this idea of story and what a story is, the film, the new Spider-Man is a, a story about how Peter Parker's identity, Peter Parker is Spider-Man, his identity is revealed to the entire world and it's ruining his life and he hates it. And so the conflict is trying to overcome that. It's trying to reverse that. And that's what the whole film is about. 
any movie that you see, any great book that you read, the ones that really capture our hearts follow this formula. It's a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Now, I tell you that because it has potential to radically change the way that you look at the problems in your life. When we deal with conflict, we don't look at it as, oh, this is a part of my story. We look at it as, woe is me. Why is this happening to me? I don't like this. I don't want this tension. God, remove this tension from my life. We don't like the fact that that things are difficult. But the truth is, if you want a good story, it's going to involve some tension. It's going to involve some conflict. In fact, even when tension is bad, it can lead to something good. Even when tension is bad. Now, that doesn't mean you have to love the tension. That doesn't mean that you have to say, you know, great, I I love it that my life just got ruined. You don't have to love the tension. But if you want to save yourself in the middle of the tension, you need to tell yourself this can be something that leads to something better. It's difficult. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't this way. But on the other side of this tension could be something amazing for my life. I I think about this with, with our church, Next Level. I planted Next Level Uh, almost 10 years ago. And um, when I first told someone that I was, I was feeling like God was leading me to plant a church, first person I told was my wife. And thankfully she was very supportive. But then from there, um, I had three separate meetings with, with people uh, just to kind of say, Hey, I I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but I feel like God is leading me to plant a church. And uh, these were three people. It was three separate meetings. These three people did not talk to each other. They weren't influenced by their opinion, but all three of them said the exact same thing to me. When I got done with my pitch saying what I felt God was telling me to do, all three of them said, don't plant a church. You can't do it. It's going to fail. It's going to be an embarrassment. You should not plant a church. All three of them said the same thing. Now, I don't know how you're wired, but when you go to someone and you're looking for affirmation and you're looking for support and they say, don't do it, it's crushing. And here I am on the midst of taking the biggest risk of my entire life. And the people I'm going to looking for support and advice are like, nope, don't do it. But I'm so thankful that's how they responded. Because if they would have responded by saying, yes, I think this is a home run. Rob, I think you're gifted enough to do this. Rob, I think this will be easy for you. I'm not sure I would have relied as much on God. But because I was told this thing is going to fail, it literally drew me to my knees. And I said over and over again, God, if you don't show up, this thing's going to fail. The vast majority of church plants don't make it after year five. And here we are on year 10. That's not because of me. It's because of God. So I didn't like the tension in the moment, but I'm thankful for the tension on the other side. The truth is, it's kind of like what the great theologian Kelly Clarkson once saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We don't like pain and we don't like the struggle, but on the other side of that tension can come some great strength. In fact, the very tension that you resist could be the thing that God uses to get you where he wants you to be. Now, that will reshape the way that you look at tension and conflict. The very thing, the very thing that you are resisting, it could be the thing that God gets you to where he wants you to be. And that leads us to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to discuss a tension that is in the New Testament part of the Bible It is a tension that was such a big tension, it almost caused one of my favorite books of the Bible to be excluded from the New Testament. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But at Next Level, we uh, honor the text. And before you stand, I want to let you know that today you are in for a treat. Today, we get not one theme verse to read, but two. Yes. That's the proper response. I like that. 
It's like a double stuff Oreo. Like we're excited. Let's read two verses. So now stand to your feet and we're going to read two different verses. These are our theme verses for today. The first one is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. The second one will be James 2, 14. We'll do them back to back. And a friendly reminder, when we get to the reference, we like to have a little bit of fun. So when you see Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, you'll see two dots between the 2 and the 8. And we just pump our fist and say dot, dot. And because this is a very special double stuff scripture reading, we get to do the dot, dot twice. Aren't you excited about that? Yeah. All right. Let's read it nice and loud. Uh, first one says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, dot, dot, 8 through 9. And now there's a second one. Here we go. Let's read it nice and loud. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? James 2, dot, dot, 14. Now that we've read the text, let's go to God in prayer. And I want to invite you to quietly pray to God in your heart. A simple prayer that I pray often is, God, speak to my heart and give me the courage to do whatever you tell me to do. And I want to invite you to pray that prayer. Would you just quietly talk to God? And God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We ask that uh, today you would remove the hardness of our hearts, that you would remove the hardness of our minds, and that you would just speak to us. Help us to hear you. But God, even more than that, help us to obey. Help us to trust that your way is the right way. Help us to trust your way even when we're afraid. God, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts. And God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. All right. So to really build this tension that we have in the New Testament, I'm going to do something that is, is I think, a little bit fun. Uh, you may not think it's fun, but I'm going to have fun doing this. Uh, the tension is between two people that we find in the New Testament. The first one is someone that we're really familiar with. We talk about him all the time. His name is Paul. Sometimes we call him the Apostle Paul. He wrote over half of the New Testament, and he, more than anyone else, helped shape our understanding of what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus. In the other corner of this tension, you have a guy by the name of James. James was Jesus's brother, and so that's a pretty important thing in the, in the New Testament. He also was one of the very first pastors. And so we don't know a lot about him, but you can read a little bit about him in the book of Acts, where we see that when people were going to uh, make decisions and they were like trying to figure out this whole church thing, James was one of the top dogs in the, in the early church. And James only wrote to us one letter. Now, I wish he written more, but he, he only wrote to us one. But I want to tell you that this letter was so uh, almost controversial that when the original people who put the canon together of the New Testament, so you know how there's like an official canon of certain movies or comic books? They did that with the Bible. There was a whole bunch of letters out there. There were a whole bunch of books out there. And they got together and they said, okay, what are the official books that are going to make up our New Testament? And they had specific criteria to put it in the New Testament. Was this really written by one of these authors? Because back in biblical days, people would, would, because their name wasn't popular, they would say, hey, I'm Paul. And they would write a letter under Paul's name, but it wasn't really Paul. And so they did these tests. Is it really written by the author? Did, Did this author spend time with Jesus? Did they really know Jesus? Or is this just someone, you know, out there speaking, you know, their opinions? And 
So they took it through all this criteria. And when it came to Paul and James, they almost excluded James from the New Testament. Because in their opinion, they said, we, it feels like James says something that is contrary to what Paul says. And Paul has all these amazing letters and he, he's such a, like, he's forming our way of understanding Christianity. And James, I mean, it's Jesus' brother, so I mean, that weighs something. And what he says is really good and it's really practical. But when you put them side by side, it feels like there is a conflict. And I'm so thankful that they did not uh, exclude James from the New Testament. But here's the fun that we're going to have. I'm going to have a little bit of a debate. And I'm going to show you this. Um, I, what, I, what I've done is I've taken some of Paul's writings and I've paired it with James's writings. Now, these two weren't written to each other, but when you see them back to back, it feels like a debate. It feels like a like an old fashioned, like almost political debate where they go back and forth. And to help us with this, I brought some friends along. This this really good looking guy is going to represent Paul. And this guy is going to represent James. And they are going to have. A fun little debate against each other. This is the tension of Paul versus James. The tension of Paul versus James. And the tension of Paul versus James is really the tension of grace versus works. Watch how this plays a part. So we have Paul. First up, Paul says, We know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. James replies, what good is it if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked, that's how you say naked in the South, and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that, Paul? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Paul replies, we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. James says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. Paul replies, the only thing I want to learn from you, James, is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by doing the works of the law or by believing that you, or what you heard? James says, but be doers of the word, Paul, and not merely hearers who deceives himself. For if, anyone, if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law of liberty and per persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think that they are religious and do not bridle the tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled by, by God, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the word. Paul then replies, just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as being just, so you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declare the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the Gentiles should be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. James replies, do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? 
Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. That is the way the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as being just, and he was called the friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. Do you feel the tension? When you just read them separately, you may miss this tension and you may miss why they wrestled with putting James into the New Testament. But when you put these things back together, it almost feels like they're arguing with one another. And then the question is, is, well, how can these two things coexist? And this is such an important question because a lot of churches have chosen a side. There are a lot of churches who have said we can't live with this tension. And so they pick one or the other. If you grew up going to church, you probably grew up into a church that chose a side. If you grew up in a church that chose James's side, it was more of a hellfire and brimstone church. It was more get your life right. You need to repent. Get like do good things for God. And it often came with some shame. It came with condemnation. It came with you feeling really bad all the time because it just constantly was do work, do work, do work. Stop doing bad. Start doing good. That's leaning more into the Paul side. Some of you maybe grew up in a church, or that's in the James side, sorry, excuse me. Some of you may have grown up going to a church that leaned more into the Paul side. And that would have been more of the grace. And my friends that grew up in the grace side, the beauty of it is they're not very legalistic. But the difficulty of it is, is that they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever, whatever happens is good. Like, you know, yeah, I just sinned, but God still loves me. It's great. And like, whatever you want to do is good. We're all saved by the grace of God. And There is no push to improve yourself or to work at all because we are saved by grace. Now, I love the churches that I grew up in. I love them. I have fond memories of church. I'm a big fan of church. I'm a big fan of my past churches. I'm a big fan of of the current church I live in. But every church, when they tend to choose a side, it can shape us. And the churches that I grew up in, especially when I started going to these churches in middle school and high school, they tended to lean more into the James side of the faith. And so it marked me. It made me feel certain things. Like I I remember that when I was in college, um, I, I was so ingrained that you have to read your Bible that in my mind, I thought if I don't read my Bible, that means I will have a bad day because God blesses those who read their Bible. And I remember one morning in college, um, I had had made a mistake and I set my alarm for 8 p.m. instead of 8 a.m. And so I woke up in a panic because I I was late. And so I rushed out the door to get to my class and I didn't have time to read the Bible. And I remember in my mind thinking and praying, God, please don't let me get hit by a car on the way to class because I didn't read the Bible today. Now, I love the churches that I grew up in, but that is the extra legalism that comes with churches that lean into the James side. God will bless you if you do what's right, but if you do what's wrong, you will be cursed. And those churches tend to be really legalistic, and they add a whole bunch of extra things onto the faith. Like, I remember one of the first churches that I interviewed for um, as, a, as a youth pastor. It was in Farmville, Virginia, and they had a, a committee. Um, back then, traditional churches ran everything by committee. It's a very demonic and satanic way to run anything, but that's the way that they would run them. And so they would get a bunch of people in the room, and they would vote on things, and they would make decisions. And they had a personnel 
committee that was uh, given the job of hiring this youth pastor. And so I drive to Farmville and I meet with this personnel committee and they asked me a handful of questions. They asked me about my background and, and I thought the interview went great. And so they essentially said, you have the job. But then before we could end, one of the women on the committee says, I just have one more question for you. She says, are you theologically conservative or theologically liberal? Now, real quick, before I tell you what happened, um, you need to know that outside of the church, we all know conservative and liberal, and we know what those means. And they can be very triggering for certain people, um, and it can mean certain things politically. When this person asked the question, it had nothing to do with politics. It was talking about your understanding of the Bible. And in church circles, people can lean conservative theologically or more liberal theologically. Conservative theologically means that you believe the traditional teachings of Scripture— Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. Those are the traditional conservative understandings of, 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 of Scripture. So you're conservative theologically. When you start to question and throw away those things, that's when someone would consider you being more theologically liberal. So if you meet someone who's theologically liberal, they're going to start saying things like, yeah, Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. Jesus wasn't a perfect, uh, he wasn't really God. He was just a good man. He didn't really die for your sins. Or if he died, he didn't rose again. And so when you start saying those things, you're going away from the traditional teachings of Scripture, and you would be considered more theologically Liberal. So when I heard the question, that's the, the filter that I, I, I heard it. And I was like, well, of course, I'm theologically conservative. And this woman responded back to me immediately. Well, good. That means you don't like the band DC Talk. Now, <laughs> some of you don't know DC Talk because you didn't listen to Christian music in the 90s. DC Talk is arguably the most influential and most popular Christian band who has ever come about. And in the 90s at this point, they were not just popular, they were my favorite band by far. In fact, so much so, I personally handed the members of DC Talk an invitation to my wedding. They did not come, but I handed it to them. I love DC Talk, love them. So when she asked me this question, I'm thrown off. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this because I am theologically conservative, but in her mind, she had linked theologically conservative with meaning that means you don't listen to any form of rock music any in her mind she added these things you don't have drums in the church you don't listen to anything that sounds worldly you don't dance you don't you don't do any of these things and that is this 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 idea that comes out of a lot of more of the james leaning churches it's it could be summed up like this if you love Jesus, you should not drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. That's the idea of these more, more, more James side churches. But on the other side is the ones that lean more into the Paul side. And they are, they are the churches that lean so far into it that literally they don't question anything. And, and someone can go out and, and just make the most heinous, sinful choice. And they're like, yeah, we're just saved by grace. We're not going to question it. We're not going to call them out. We're not going to hold anyone accountable because we're all saved by grace. When you remove Paul from James or you remove James from Paul, it leads to a problem in our faith. And I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this before, but I am telling you that our faith is stronger, not when we separate these two guys, but when we hold them in tension together. Grace without works leads to apathy. Grace without works leads to apathy. If you just are grace, 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 then it leads you to believe, well, it really doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved by grace. I know God wants me to obey, 
but it doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. I know that I'm supposed to share my faith and tell people that don't know Jesus about Jesus, but it doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. God will call someone else to tell them. I know I'm supposed to honor God with my finances, but it doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved by grace. God doesn't care about any of that stuff. And so grace without works, it literally can lead to apathy where you're just like, yeah, it doesn't matter. God loves me. So why does it matter what I do? On the other side of the coin, though, works without grace leads to legalism. Works without grace leads to legalism. If you have works, but you don't have grace, it leads you to add all these extra rules. And it leads you to believe, well, God only loves you if you obey. And so we need both of these things. We need Paul's grace and we need James's idea of works. So let's look at these two verses together, starting with Paul. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul's idea here has nothing to do with what happens after salvation. Paul's idea is if you are a person who is saved, you need to understand that the only reason you are saved is by God's grace. You are not saved because you're a good person. You are not saved because you go to church. You're not saved because you're an American. You're not saved because your parents were Christians. If you are saved, if you have found Jesus, it's because he found you first. And it is by grace you are saved. It is a gift of God. Yeah. Well, now look at James. Because James isn't talking about salvation. James is talking about what happens after a person becomes saved. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So James is not saying that you are saved by works or the work that you do. James is saying that if you are a Christian, if you've received the grace of God, it produces works in your life. And if someone says, I'm saved by God's grace, but doesn't have a desire to obey God, doesn't have a desire to walk with God, doesn't have a desire to improve and become more like God, then are they really saved? If you've taken the gift of grace and you haven't done anything with it, are you really saved? These two things live in tension with one another. Here's the question. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down and I'd encourage you to think about it. Feel free to take a picture of it. Here's the question. The question is, are you doing good works to earn the favor of God or because of the favor of God? The question is, are you doing good works to earn the favor of God or because of the favor of God? If you are doing good works to earn the favor of God, you are in danger of legalism. You cannot earn God's favor. God doesn't love you more because you've obeyed. God doesn't love you more because you came to church when it snowed outside at an 830 service. God does not love you more. And this is something that is hard for perfectionists to believe. Because if you're here today and you're a perfectionist, you're probably really hard on yourself. And you feel like people love you. In fact, you love yourself more when you do what's right. So when it comes to God, you align more with James. And you say, okay, I messed up today. That means God's not proud of me. That means God doesn't love me. That means that I, I'm just such a, a, a failure. But Christians are saved by grace, not by our works. So the salvation we hold on to, it's not because how good or bad we are. It's because it is a gift from God. And so we don't do like great things for God to try to earn his favor. We do things because of his favor. Like we don't give financially back to the church because we want to force God to bless us. 
And if you ever think that you need to reject that thinking, you don't give so that you have a good year. You don't give so that you have a good week. You don't give so that God loves you more or so you get an extra blessing. We already have the blessing. It's in Jesus. And so when you've received the gift of grace, it leads you to want to give. God's been good to me, so I want to give and I want to help other people. We don't go to church and serve on one of our serve teams to try to get God to get our attention and say, well, God, I serve for you. I work back in the kids room that deserves something special. You should give me a reward. No, the reward is Jesus. And we serve because he's given us his son. So you serve in difficult positions, not to try to earn God's favor or not to try to fix your sin or punish yourself. You serve and you give because you've already received the gift of God. We don't read our Bibles every day because it makes God bless us. We don't read our Bibles every day to earn some special favor or privilege from God. We read our Bibles every day because God has blessed us with salvation and we want to learn more about him. When you mix these things up or when you remove the tension, it can it can wreck your faith. And I thought of an illustration that I hope really makes this come home. Um, and I hope it really resonates with you. Um, the whole, the whole debate, Paul versus James, it, it's kind of like this. Anyone know what this is? It's an iPhone box. The only droid user in my life is the only one that answered this question out loud. Thank you very much. This is a, an iPhone. It's an iPhone box. This is a very exciting thing to get. I don't know other iPhone users when you've gotten your box, but when I've gotten it, like, I love this thing so much, I don't get rid of the box. Like, I'm like, I put it in a, a shelf somewhere. I don't know why. Like, I have like three of these boxes. Like, why does it, it matter? I'm not going to return it. I don't need the box. But you just keep it because it's like, this is a special gift. Like, when you get an iPhone, I don't know, for me, it just, it means something. Now, I want you just to imagine, just for a second, that you did not have a cell phone. I know almost everyone has a cell phone. But just imagine that you did not have a cell phone. And you didn't have the financial means to get a cell phone on your own. It doesn't matter how much you worked. It doesn't matter who your family is. There is just no way that you could ever afford an iPhone. Now, if you came to church today and I walked up to you and I, I didn't know you, I didn't know your name, I had never met you before, but I just walked up to you and said, you know what? Um, I just feel led to give you this gift. If I handed this iPhone to someone who could not afford it and did not deserve it, what would your response be? It would probably be like a very special thing of like, oh my gosh, like, no, I can't take that, right? Wouldn't you kind of think about rejecting it? If you've been given a gift that you can't repay and you can't do anything back, your first thought is like, no, I, I, don't, I don't want that. But if I insist and I say, no, 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 listen, this is yours. This is your gift. I'm giving this to you. There's no strings attached. There, there, there's no, uh, you don't have to do anything for me. You don't ever have to show up to church again and you still get to take this phone with you. This is a free gift. Now, if I were to give this to someone and they received it and they said, thank you, but then they took the box and they just went home and they never actually opened the box to reveal the phone and they never turned on the phone and they never bought any apps and they never did anything with it. They literally just kept the phone in the box and they were like, man, you know what? I remember that one time I went to church and I received that free, free gift and they just put it in a drawer and let it sit there. This phone would not do them any good. It is, this is a free gift. It doesn't get taken back if you don't use it. 
it, it, it doesn't mean that you're less of a person or that God doesn't love you. But if you've received the free gift of God and you don't take it out and do something with the phone, it is showing, did you really receive the gift? Did you really understand what the gift was? The gift of grace is like this phone. It is given to you and you can't unearn it. When God gives you this grace, if you make a mistake, he doesn't come and say, oh, that's it. You messed up today. I'm taking back salvation. I'm taking back the gift that I've given you. He doesn't take it back from us. But at the same time, when you are really saved, when you really understand what God has done, we take it out of the box and we use it and we spend time with it. And this thing then motivates us to continue doing the things that God wants us to do. We don't do these things to earn the phone. We've already got the phone. We do this thing because of the phone. Does that resonate? I hope that makes, makes some sense. hope that makes some sense to you. I don't know if this is something that you've ever wrestled with or not. Or not. I don't know what your church life was like growing up or if you ever went to church. But I'm telling you, this is something that is so important that if you miss this, it will wreak havoc on your faith. And it will especially wreak havoc on your faith when you struggle. Or when life doesn't go good. For me growing up in the more James type churches. It really messed with me when life started to fall apart. Specifically I remember um, my wife and I went through 10 years of infertility. And we've been very public about that. And we've shared about that a lot. And in the middle of that 10 years um, we had a, a very tragic uh, miscarriage. And... Uh, the miscarriage messed with me in so many ways. And specifically, it messed with me spiritually. Every day I get up and I, I read the Bible and I pray. And I remember the next day after the miscarriage, I, I just couldn't pray and I couldn't read the Bible. And I didn't want to talk to God. And I thought, well, this will pass. Like, I'm just kind of frustrated. I'm hurting. I'm sad. But an entire week went by where I still got up and I would just sit in my chair and I would just sit there in quiet. And I'm like, I can't read this Bible and I cannot pray because I was hurting. And after a week went by, I finally mustered the courage to pray. And I said something like this to God. God, I just don't get what the point is. Why should I pray and why should I read my Bible? And why am I in ministry if you're not going to protect me from a miscarriage? You knew you knew the struggle that we've been going through. You knew how much we've wanted a baby. I would rather you just tell me you guys will never get pregnant than to allow us to get pregnant and lose the very thing that we've been praying for. So what's the point? Why should I pray? Why should I read the Bible? Why should I be a pastor if you're not going to protect me from these things? And this is what I felt like God said back to my spirit. You don't do spiritual things for God to change his opinion of you. You do spiritual things for God to change your opinion of him. And that thought revolutionized my idea of Christianity. Because if you don't understand the grace that Paul preaches, when your world falls apart, you're going to say, well, God, what's the point? Why should I do these good works if it doesn't earn me extra favor? Why should I go to church and serve if you're not going to protect me from problems in this world? If you don't understand the grace of God, you're going to question the goodness of God. If you don't understand the grace of God, especially when your world falls apart, you're going to start saying, well, God, you must not be good. No, God is good. And he's given us his grace to walk us through difficult seasons. And we don't spend time with God just to get favor. We spend time with God because of his favor. And when you spend time with God, it reminds you of the goodness of God. 
And we have the grace of God because this world is hard and it's difficult and we are broken people and we will all suffer. But by the grace of God, we are led to walk with God. So we don't remove the grace of God from Christianity because then we end up with legalism. But at the same time, we don't remove our calling to do good works. Our calling to do good works is a response to the grace of God. And today, I hope that you'll see how this tension goes together. And I hope that you'll see and you'll apply it to your life specifically by changing the way that you view a relationship with God. That going to God is not just to get good things from him. It's because of the good things that we've gotten. And when you spend time with God and you give to God and you serve for God, it helps you get to know the God of the universe who has given you the free gift of salvation. Not by work so that no one can boast. This is why it's so important to hold grace and works in tension. Will you pray with me, God? We come before you and we just thank you that you are the God of grace the God that saves us despite the fact that we can't save ourselves. We thank you for the gift that you have given us, this free gift of salvation. And God, help us not to waste it. Help us not to just put it on a shelf. Help us to be motivated and moved to love you because of the gift of grace. We ask you to help us to hold these things in tension and that you would change our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like to hear more, please visit our website at nextlevelchurch.net. You can also follow us on social media at nextlevel757. Join us next time.